0: To walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb
1: the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts.
2: I'm for peace and quiet, Mr Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet
0: diplomacy. Well, uh, it's certainly been a chaotic and at times dispiriting month as we've seen and are seeing terrible images and heard tragic stories from the conflict in the Middle East, Unfortunately, it looks like it has quite a way to play out yet. And today we're going to discuss some of the potential long-term outcomes of this terrible bloodshed. Can it lead us anywhere good? Can it? That's the question. We'll also be looking at the impact of uh, our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese's two overseas visits to Washington and Beijing, which of course starts today, that very important visit. And of course, um, there's the other war, Ukraine. Many of us guilty of taking our eyes off it in the last few weeks, so we'll attempt to put that to right. Joining me this morning, Professor James Curran, the Financial Reviews International Editor and Professor of Modern History at Sydney University, Dr. Beck Strating from La Trobe, where she's Associate Professor of Politics and International (laughs) Relations there, and Ian Palmiter, who is a research fellow at the ANU specialising in the Middle East, a former diplomat who served as our ambassador to Lebanon in the late 90s. Welcome to you all thank you thank you Thanks, um let's start with the very important and highly anticipated visit to china uh, and meeting with president xi jinping which, of course, comes straight off the back of the visit to Washington. James Curran, what difference does it make, if any, that the visit to Beijing comes so soon after the visit to Washington, you know, where a state visit was held in his honour, only the fourth of Biden's presidency? Does it sort of give Anthony Albanese a slightly stronger position in terms of negotiating any potential trade or other deals, do you think?
3: I certainly think it gives Albanese some cover for talking positively about dialogue with Beijing. Now, I think Albanese has been very consistent on this from the time that he became opposition leader, even during the darkest days, if you like, where the relationship was in a deep freeze. Uh, Albanese was consistently making the case that dialogue is better than sort of throwing throwing rocks across each other, um, at, you know, across the Pacific. Now, um, it's very clear to me, I think, that what came out of Washington was a kind of a convergence between the Australian and American positions on China. I think... That's not to say the Americans aren't watching closely what happens with Mr. Albanese's visit to Beijing. Um, but nevertheless, both of them, I think are at, are at the point where they agree that dialogue is a good thing, it's a positive, but they have no expectations about uh, grand kind of visits or encounters that will that will result in any kind of reset of the relationship. this is about, I think as good as it gets. Um, for the Americans in particular, I think you know the, the importance of the Albanese visit where it is is that the Americans had a chance to talk to him before he goes, mm. and now Mr., Mr Albanese will be able to talk to the President before he meets uh, Xi Jinping at APEC in November. So I think the Americans see it a bit differently, though, in terms of it's one last chance to have a look at Xi before the relationship enters into freefall again next year with elections in Taiwan and the American election itself, where, as we know, the the hot talk in Washington on conflict with China doesn't seem to dissipate.
0: No, um, uh, you know, the Americans... So the, the word stabilisation that keeps being used, mm. that we want to stabilise the relationship and, and you know, it's quite an inviting word. How do you think the Americans see that word?
3: Well, I think <clears throat> there would be some some view in Washington, I think, amongst those who probably... Uh, preferred there to be some kind of uh, enduring tension between Australia and China. Let's not forget that in the previous administration, for example, uh, the national deputy national security advisor, Matt Pottinger, was kind of celebrating Australia as the pioneer, if you like, of standing up to Chinese economic coercion. I mean, the, some Americans in the system really bought that line that Australia was a model for how to call out China and, and push back. Um, but yeah, you know, so so there would be some who see who see it as tantamount to appeasement, tantamount to softening. Uh, there were some comments before Mr Albanese went to Washington that there is concern in Washington that Australia is softening its position on China, that it hasn't been quite as uh, upbeat, if you like, in terms of criticising Chinese assertion in the in, in an activity in the South China Sea. Uh, a, a claim I think difficult to sustain, given that Mr Albanese stood shoulder to shoulder with the president of the Philippines. Um, but I think there's also a feeling in Washington too that, um, uh, and, and this came out in the aftermath of the Washington visit, that uh, Australia needs to be given a bit of a prod in terms of its defence spending. There is concern in the White House that the Labor Party is, not, uh, is good on, and, and strong on the rhetoric in terms of the AUKUS agreement, but it's not putting the money up front.
0: Hmm, Interesting. Uh, Beck Strading, I wonder about your thoughts on all of this. What clues will you be looking for over the course of this visit to judge for yourself how profound the shift really is in our relationship with China?
2: Well, I think um, James is spot on the money with his comments. I think the trip in and of itself is probably going to be uh, the most significant thing. This is the first trip uh, by an Australian leader to China since 2016. And I do think that this is an effort to kind of return to some kind of stabilisation or normalisation in diplomatic uh, relationships. But I think we really need to keep our expectations sort of realistic about um, what might come from this trip. Uh, I don't really imagine uh, that things are going to be returning to the heights of 2014 when both countries signed a a comprehensive strategic partnership. The Albanese government has been very clear that China has changed, uh, therefore so too must the relationship. Uh, And we still see a range of issues uh, where the two countries are quite divergent in their views. You know, the mm. South China Sea is probably a topic that uh, will come up. Australia is very concerned about the militarisation uh, of the South China Sea, concerned about some of China's sort of assertive grey zone tactics uh, in the South and the East China Seas and across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, so this is why we also hear the Albanese government saying sort of <laughs> relentlessly that we must cooperate with China yeah. where we can and disagree yeah. where we must. But the real question is, well, what are those? Those areas of cooperation and I think trade is really where there is still uh, mutual complementarity in the relationship and both countries yeah. seem to want to want to address some of those issues. It
0: it, it just is interesting um, whether the China, you know, it, it's hard to judge, of course, no one ever knows fully whether the Chinese are comfortable with this. I mean, I've seen uh, writing saying, look, the, it, it, the visit to America just confirmed for the Chinese, you know, the depth of that relationship. They're cool, they're cool with that. They understand Australia's relationship long term. You know, they're very conscious of historic links. They're not nettled by them. So, uh, And there was a very interesting, um, uh, the Chinese ambassador, China's ambassador to Australia, who's, I think, been quite deft Xiao um, Qian from the yep. People's Republic, had this very interesting phrase about the uh, writing in the Financial Review. As a traditional yep. Australian saying goes, keep your eyes on the sun and you will not see the shadows. I did smile myself. So I thought, I don't know that I've ever actually heard that. That sounds much more like a Chinese, a Chinese aphorism to me. But, you know, it, they seem relaxed. Now, I just
2: wonder how you read it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's obvious really um, that Australia and the United States are not only, you know, close allies historically but are moving uh, even closer together. We yes. only have to read the the Defence Strategic Review released earlier this year or follow the progress of AUKUS to see how much the Albanese government has actually consolidated some of those key defence policies of uh, of the Morrison government. Uh, government. So um, I think that, you know, it's it's I, I'm not sure that um, China is necessarily comfortable with it, but I think one of the most interesting things that came out of Albanese's trip to Washington uh, was this focus on reducing Australia's uh, reliance on China in the area of critical minerals. So you know there's this announcement of a joint task force on critical minerals, concern about Chinese kind of weaponizing trade and a move towards what people are calling friend-shoring, which I think is just, you know, Mm -hmm. wanting to trade with your friends rather than your potential foes. Uh, And I think that if these developments in trade um, really sort of start to take off, uh, and, and in supply chains and in critical minerals, that might actually, uh, you know, have an effect on uh, China's sort of geoeconomic strategies. Mm, interesting. And I haven't forgotten that we have Ian Palmer to
0: waiting, but I'm saving him a little bit more for the uh, israel Gaza. So, um, I just want to ask, uh, uh, Beck one more question. Um, you spoke to Taiwan's Foreign Minister, Joseph Wu, this week, back in a webinar. How are they seeing the shift in the relationship between Australia and China, which, you know, is, is really just heading off possibly into different territory after a long deep freeze. So what do they sense about it?
2: Yeah, the Taiwanese messaging is really interesting and I think there has been a kind of effort on behalf of Taiwanese representatives to, to do more raising uh, of awareness of Taiwanese perspectives because, you know, there's concern that China is trying to isolate Taiwan on the international stage. So you're right, I did ask Taiwan's uh, Foreign Minister, Joseph Wu, about uh, how he viewed that trip and, I mean, it was, you know, it's a sort of a typical, I guess, diplomatic response and saying not wanting to comment too much on Australia's foreign policy approach. But he did say that a diplomatic tug of war isn't in the region's interests and that perhaps making relations a little bit better with China will help to prevent conflict. Uh, But He also did point out that we need to keep in mind that China is trying to advance its interests, including through things like weaponising trade. But I think that's pretty close to how Australia views the situation anyway. Going back to that idea of cooperating where we can and disagreeing where we must is really, you know, about Australia standing firm on what it most uh, believes in. So I think the foreign minister's general point is that he sees Australia as a vital partner for Taiwan. And that's not going to change whether or not Albanese visits um, Xi Jinping in Beijing. And and James,
0: I wonder where you think all of this leaves us um, in terms of debate within Australia. You, you've done it in your columns in the AFR, sort of showing up the two competing schools of thought in Canberra on Australia's foreign policy on China and the balancing act that both uh, Albanese and Penny Wong uh, are having to tread between the two.
3: Yes, well, that's right, and and I, and I think there are some security hawks who are already uh, lying in wait to sort of parse every single word, every single gesture to see whether or not there is a hint uh, of uh, of any kind of concession or weakness shown. I mean, there was a, even the absurd suggestion uh, at, at some point that uh, Mr Albanese shouldn't bow. Um, I don't think Mr Albanese is intending to go over and bow to, to Xi Jinping, but... Look, he he has said um, on the record, the Prime Minister, that he wants a relationship with China in the future of no surprises. I thought this was interesting. No surprises, and he he added to it a, a relationship where we know where things are coming from. And I think, presumably uh, and reasonably enough, that means uh, no more economic sanctions, no more weaponisation of trade. Ideally, I suspect, and prob- but probably less likely, it uh, it also, I guess, means they don't. Australians don't want to wake up to headlines about things like the latest Chinese diplomatic or strategic push into the Pacific. Now, stabiliser. I think the Australian government is content with a policy of enduring stabilisation, but only time will tell if the march of events, and I've I've argued this in the Financial Review today, uh, as to whether or not China's ambitions, uh, those that are uh, have been stated and announced, whether or not that affords him that kind of luxury for a relationship with no surprises. We do know that the Chinese are much more enthusiastic about this visit than Australia. There is a tug of war apparently going on between two sides, the two sides as to whether or not there'll be a statement, principles or a joint communique to come out of the uh, visit. Mm. Now, remembering there's only been what, two of those before, at the time of the Whitlam visit in, in 1973, and then in Australia in 2009 when there'd been Uh, A year of difficulties when Kevin Rudd was was Prime Minister. Um, But the Chinese, as you mentioned, the ambassador to China, Chinese ambassador, has painted a a kind of a a trajectory of this relationship that goes beyond stabilisation. He talks about it improving, then consolidating, then developing. Uh, Canberra is not on that page at this point. There is that group in Canberra that wants to use the bilateral relationship to try and manage and moderate US-China strategic competition. But I think... We're still looking at a a basic reality that the school of thought, which is the most dominant, I think, in Canberra, remains that which sees US-China relations in zero-sum terms. It's a new Cold War, and containment is the answer.
0: Yeah, just It's good, I think, for, for listeners to be alert to the fact that we will see this sort of debate. Look, let me just tell listeners, Dr. Beck Strating from La Trobe is with us, James Curran, uh, a professor of modern history at Sydney University and from the Financial Review, uh, and I'm about to introduce uh, uh, Ian Parmenter, who is a former ambassador to the region. Just before I do, uh, I just want to flag to listeners who might be interested, there's an extremely interesting piece in the New York Times about China's uh, leaders, male leaders, um, and mm-hmm. their senior. Secret- signalling to women that their place is in the home. Uh, it's a fascinating... It's, it was a big five-yearly meeting of the National Women's Congress. And, um, it, it, you know, we just don't have time today to go into it, but we we will. But if you want to look it up, it's a very, very interesting commentary on culture inside China. Okay, let's focus now to the fighting in Gaza, which, of course, is just very, very much underway. Um to Ian Palmerton now, uh, I don't know, Ian, uh, whether you heard Hassan Nasrallah, the head of the Lee, of Hezbollah, the Lebanese yeah. paramilitary and political group, um, giving his first big speech. And I must yes. say I got up this morning deliberately to make sure I heard it before I came into work. Um, was it predictable? Was there anything about it that surprised
1: you? No, nothing. It was uh, exactly what I thought it would be. Uh, uh, it was very interesting that it took uh, four weeks for uh, Nasrallah to, to make this speech. Uh, he clearly was trying to work out um, a, a line with Iran, I, I, I think, but also trying to work out uh, ways in which it might play to his own Lebanese audience because his brother is a political actor as well as a, a military actor. But it was essentially a lot of bombast Um blaming Israel and the Americans for for, for for everything that's going wrong in Gaza, but not promising uh, or making even any credible threats that his will, will get involved. I think what came out of the speech is that uh, his boller essentially has been deterred by the fact that uh, the United States has put two carrier battle groups just offshore and has made clear that it would be prepared to use uh, the aircraft and munitions associated with with that uh, weaponry uh, against Hezbollah if if it got involved to help Israel out. Uh, and the other thing is that what what actually happens whenever there is a war uh, that involves Hezbollah is that Israel hits Lebanese infrastructure. And that would be the last thing that Lebanon in its current dire political situ- uh, and economic situation uh, would would want, uh, so it wasn't surprising. Uh, the other thing that I might mention that happened overnight was that uh, an Israeli or an an Israeli strike hit an ambulance. Um, mm-hmm. Israel said the ambulance contained. Uh, was carrying a, uh, a a Hamas representative. Um, that may be so, but what I recall was that when I was in Lebanon, uh, and during one of the wars between Hezbollah and and Israel, uh, one of the key factors was a, an ambulance being hit, which uh, Israel at the time said contained his uh, operatives but in the event was found to have two women and two children and that was one of the factors which uh, which led to the uh, to, to the war actually being stopped the other of course was the uh, a terrible uh, strike against a uh, hundred civilians which led bill clinton at the time to call uh, the Israeli uh, Prime Minister and say stop it now—it's doing too much damage.
0: So your point is that there there can be events that uh, where the superpower decides enough is enough because of the blowback potentially on them—is that what you're implying?
1: Yes, yes, because of the blowback. But I think uh, a, a wrinkle in all this is that we're dealing now with with Netanyahu, who is essentially fighting for his political life. Uh, Netanyahu will be aware that the last time uh, an Israeli prime minister was uh, was essentially caught napping. It was in 196, uh, 1973, mm. when Golda Meir was gone within six months because uh, the pub, the Israeli public has no tolerance for uh, for leaders who who don't appear to be uh, able to give them the security that, uh, that that they demand.
0: Well, we'll see, and in fact, I want to play now a very interesting um, interview or a grab from an interview uh, with Iris Mackler, who's a former ABC foreign correspondent, actually, who now lives in Tel Aviv, and um, she. She did, I think, very cleverly sort of characterise the type of thinking that is roiling (laughs) the society. Uh, We think we're looking at the outside, but inside Israel, it's really on, shall we say, the debate. So let's have a listen. Uh, Gadi Shamni is a former Gaza division head, a military man. He was a military attaché to Washington. He was a military advisor to Ariel Sharon. And yesterday he said of Netanyahu that he thinks he's still in battle shock. Uh, and that he thinks he is not the man to prosecute this war and he should resign immediately. Mm. So those are the kind of calls that we're hearing and I've heard a political analyst whom I do respect saying Netanyahu is actually a dead man walking, politically speaking. Yeah, now, I mean, that was, it was speaking on the drum. Now, we've heard this dead man walking thing for two weeks now, uh, actually, Ian, and I don't actually, I don't even know whether you know, like, how would they move him on while a war is on? He's head of the War Cabinet.
1: That's right. Uh, well, uh, 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 Netanyahu has already said that there will be an inquiry that will involve him after the war is over. But the uh, fighting the war has to be given priority. Uh, the other thing that Netanyahu has done, which I think is, is actually quite clever, is that his war cabinet uh, contains a member of the opposition. It's got Benny Gantz, yes. uh, who actually is a, a former General. head of the Israeli de- Defence Forces. So that means that any decisions that are taken about the prosecution of war will be shared around polit- politically. But couldn't, so couldn't got- he?
0: Be, couldn't gants be a stand-in leader i mean that's what i've been watching so interestingly is how do you i mean
1: <laughs> arguably
0: shouldn't be playing politics at all he's sending you know emails at 1am in the morning defending himself until people sort of said hey you know shouldn't you be fighting the war like yeah, and, and he's yeah. sending out very veiled messages about the forces of light versus the forces of darkness so the argument is he is still playing politics in the middle of all of this
1: Netanyahu will also always play politics. It's just the the the, the nature of the man. Uh, he is really desperate to hang on to that job, not least because it provides him with some protection against the the criminal charges that uh, are currently being, you know, wending their way through the courts. They're, they're taking a long time. But at some stage, if he is found guilty, uh, he um he will actually lose that position and could well go to jail as uh, well, as other uh, Israeli prime uh, ministers
0: have. Ehud Ormut went to jail. He was on exactly. television this week, in um, exactly. a very interesting interview <laughs> with Sarah Ferguson. And he I, I, th- I think it. he was seventeen months in in jail. Look, let let's move to the broader regional situation because. Um, Much of the media and expert commentary has been concerned, and a lot of people are just highly anxious, naturally, about this turning into a broader regional war. In your view, why has that not happened yet?
1: I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that Hamas itself is not popular with uh, the with leaders of the region. Certainly it's not popular with, with Egypt because uh, uh, Hamas came out of the Muslim Brotherhood, which, of course, was deposed by uh, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the current president of, of, of Egypt. Um, it's not popular with the conservative leaders, it's not popular with uh, the, the leaders of Saudi Arabia and Jordan. So they are trying to keep a lid Uh, on any sympathy for Hamas as such. What goes against that is that uh, there are a lot of people in Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, right through the Middle East, in Jordan particularly, uh, who are very sympathetic to the Palestinians themselves, that they distinguish between Hamas and, uh, and the Palestinians. But at this stage, Uh, none of them have shown an interest in getting involved in the fighting itself. Uh, And uh, I think in this sense, you can say that the the fact that these signatories to the Abraham Accords back in 2020, thinking here of uh, particularly the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, Uh, as well as Sudan and Morocco, um, have shown no inclination to uh, leave those agreements uh, uh, at this stage. So I'd I'd, I'd be surprised if there were actually a wider war, uh, as we've already spoken about, uh, Nasrallah has indicated that uh, Lebanon is most unlikely to become another front. I think actually the biggest risk is probably in the, in the West, West Bank. Bank, yes, because that's where uh, the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas has lost uh, all authority and uh, authority is now moving towards shadowy groups like Lions Den, which are getting involved with uh, with fighting with, Young ones. with settlers. Mm. And uh, that that is an area where Israeli troops will need to be able to provide protection. Well, of course, the they
0: were there in the West Bank and they weren't down there on the border with Gaza. And that's, this is it's absolutely crucial. Uh, look, it, this is tricky uh, for the region. Let's take a listen to Robert Daneen, to whom I spoke last week former head of the quartet mission in Jerusalem uh, speaking about the balancing act inside that region
3: this crisis has brought the people out into the street so the only thing they can protest about is palestine mm. and so i think my concern is uh, you know watching it is that you know that could become a lightning rod for all of the grievances that, that are you know, being felt in a country like Egypt, which is going through tremendous economic privation as well as political struggle. And you see it elsewhere in other countries as well, again, where there's no channel for political defense. All of a sudden, this takes place. Everyone has seen this on their television. The regime will allow people
0: to take to the streets on this issue because otherwise they look like they're um, defending you know, the Israelis. So, I mean, that's the thing. It, it, it's pretty obvious, as you've alluded to, that the region is finally, after seven years, uh, coming to terms with the, uh, you know, Israel. And that was Bibi Netanyahu's great dream. He just didn't care to bother about the Palestinians. Um, and yet it's possible the, the politics within will also might threaten that. But you, you don't think so.
1: No, I think I think the the leaders will be able to keep uh, a hold on that. Uh, they probably will allow some letting off of steam, even in uh, places like we...
0: Iraq. If you could say, you know, there there are there are some sort of concerns about attacks against uh, the two thousand five hundred American soldiers in Iraq and those huge rallies. You know, and we know what thinks about Iraq yeah. these days, but it sits there watching all of this as well.
1: Yeah, so Iraq has been relatively quiet on on, on this. It hasn't. Uh, I mean, essentially, the Iraqi leadership will, will answer to uh, to Iran as well. Mm. Uh, so they'll want to be uh, somewhat circumspect in, in the way in which they 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 behave. It's re- really not in Iran's interests for this to get out of out of hand, out of control in areas where it can where it can actually have an influence, because. This could lead to uh, if it became a serious war um, involving um, or you know, multi, uh, multitude of states in the region. Sure. This could lead to an excuse for uh, attacks on Iran's nuclear facilities, which, mm. of course, it, it it doesn't want to happen. I just want, uh,
0: can I just go back to Beck quickly because I do want to have a little bit on Ukraine. How are the key capitals in Asia, in your judgment, because this is your specialty area? Viewing all of this, by the way.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, Asia is uh, very diverse and there's nothing like a crisis to really bring that into stark relief. I mean, you have some of the the Southeast Asian states where um, with some of the Muslim majority states like Indonesia and Malaysia, who show support for Palestinian statehood. Indonesia, for example, released a statement that the root of the conflict, namely the occupation of the Palestinian territories by Israel must be resolved. Malaysia was even more strident and took aim at Western powers for appearing to be indifferent to the actions taken by Israel against the the Palestinian people, Uh, whereas you have other countries like uh, Singapore, um, you know, strongly condemned Hamas actions as terror attacks, close defence relations with Israel. Um, I think, you know, uh, some of Australia's uh, closest partners in Asia, the ones that are most closely tied to the United States, might be uh, a bit concerned uh, that the, what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on uh, in the Middle East is going to drag the focus away from the Indo-Pacific region. So for a large part of the, the last you know, five years or so, Australia has really been consolidating this Indo-Pacific concept. It's trying to anchor the US in the region, uh, but these sorts of things that are going on in other regions are really demonstrating, I think, how difficult it is uh, to actually do that and how stretched the United States is uh, as a global power.
0: Yes. Look, I think we're just looking at the time. I, the Hamas de- delegation um, and the Iranian deputy foreign minister were visiting Moscow for talks. And I really do want to talk about how Putin's taking all this, but I think we won't rush it and we'll return back to that next week. It's just such a lot on. Um, we haven't looked at Ukraine for a while, but you know we officially had that uh, statement this week from their um, le- their uh, uh, commander in chief that the there was a stalemate there. Look, I think we'll leave it there it's, uh, rather than, uh, than, than compress it. Dr Beckstrating, thank you to you. Ian Parmiter, thank you very much indeed for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. And James Curran, thank you to you.
3: Thanks, Geraldine.
0: James Curran, uh, who's uh, the Financial Review's international editor. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.